The United States House of Representatives rejected impeachment charges against Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary today, after a small group of Republicans broke with their party and refused to support what amounted to a partisan indictment of President Biden's immigration policies. The move dealt a stunning defeat to Speaker Mike, Mike Johnson, who had expressed confidence that he had the votes to charge the Homeland Security officer or secretary, that is, with high crimes and misdemeanors for failing to lock down the United States border with Mexico. And in public remarks on a proposal tying an immigration crackdown to delivering emergency aid to Ukraine and Israel, the president argued that he was ready to deal on tough border provisions, but Republicans walked away. Biden called on congressional Republicans to show some spine and resist pressure from former President Donald Trump to thwart a bipartisan agreement that would make the broad changes to the nation's immigration system as proposed by Republicans and authorize $118 billion to support Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. And in a bad day for the Republicans, including Donald Trump, a federal appeals court rejected Trump's claim that he was immune to charges of plotting to subvert the results of the 2020 election, ruling that he must go to trial on a criminal indictment accusing him of seeking to overturn his loss to Joe Biden. Now, this unanimous ruling by a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia handed Trump a significant defeat, but... It was unlikely to be the final word in the claim of executive immunity as Trump has already vowed to file an action or to at least to try to have this case reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court. And Michigan jurors today, after 11 hours of deliberations, found Jennifer Crumbly guilty of involuntary manslaughter for the gun rampage, uh, rampage committed by her son, who carried out the state's deadliest school shooting more than two years ago. Crumbly was convicted today on four counts of involuntary manslaughter, one for each of the four students who were shot to death by her son at Oxford High School. Now, this happened on November 30, 2021. Her son, Ethan Crumbly, was 15 at the time, and he has been in prison or jail uh, until he was sentenced. He's now serving a life without parole prison sentence. He is appealing his sentencing. His father, James Crumbly, is set to go to trial on four charges of involuntary manslaughter in several weeks. And Hamas has responded to a ceasefire framework that could free hostages in Gaza. Now, this is according to officials in Qatar. And the U.S. Secretary of State, who happens to be in the Middle East, uh, doing shuttle diplomacy, trying to rally support for this deal, has cautioned, even though we're making progress, there is still a lot of work to be done. And Biden said today during that press conference while talking about immigration that Hamas's demands are a little over the top. But he said he is encouraged that something is going to be done to free the hostages and that might result in a temporary ceasefire. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time, and in this hour, we dig a little deeper. We go behind the headlines and we bring you those stories that people are talking about. 
And today is a big legal news day. Obviously, we have this Jennifer Crumbly decision. Folks have been uh, glued to this case because uh, the case has such historical significance. This is the first time ever in our country that parents have been held criminally responsible for a school shooter. Now, we've all watched so many of these mass shootings, many of them taking place at school uh, school campuses, whether it's you know first graders in Connecticut or those elementary school kids in Texas. We've seen far too many innocent students gunned down uh, in schools and not by terrorists or not by foreign terrorists, but by students, students who are uh, friends, in many cases, of the very people that have been shot and killed. And in this historic decision today, Jennifer Crumbly, 45-year-old mother, has been held accountable, criminally accountable. Now, she faces up to 15 years for each of the convictions of involuntary manslaughter. So that's four kids were murdered. There were four charges. So in theory, she could be facing 120 years in prison. Now, what we've been told is that these charges, the 15 years is likely to run uh, concurrently rather than consecutively. So uh, even if she gets the maximum of 15 years, she's likely to be able to serve out that time without having to do the 15 years for each of the convictions. This case was troubling on so many levels for me. I spent the last couple of weeks talking about it on television uh, I pretty much predicted this outcome, not at all surprised by it. The prosecution had an incredibly strong case. Uh, they put on 21 witnesses, hundreds of pages of text messages. Jennifer Crumbly's lawyer, her defense attorney, made a calculated decision to only call one witness, and that was Jennifer Crumbly. Uh, and they believed, had to believe, uh, there was... Uh, that was going to be enough. Now, we know there's a, a debate between the attorney, the defense attorney, and Jennifer Crumbly herself. The defense attorney wanted to call her son, Ethan Crumbly, to the stand. They were hoping that Ethan Crumbly would uh, testify to something he told one of the jailhouse psychiatrists, which was that he lied about uh, the fact that he had told his parents he was having emotional issues. His lawyer, though, Ethan's lawyer, said that Ethan would not be testifying, that if forced to take the witness stand, he would plead the fifth because he is appealing his sentencing. He's claiming that because these murders happened when he was a minor, that although life in prison may be the appropriate uh, sentence, that it shouldn't be life without the opportunity of parole. And there's some Supreme Court cases that talk about uh, the developing brain of, of kids and, and why kids in this uh, in our judicial system shouldn't get life without parole. So Ethan's lawyers did not want him on the witness stand saying or doing anything that could in any way impact negatively his own appeal because they have an obligation to fight for him. And they're hoping that Ethan won't spend every year of his life in a prison cell, but that maybe in 15, 20, 30 years, when he still would only be, I don't know, 40, 45 years old, he would have an opportunity to be released from prison. Uh, so the defense didn't have an opportunity to call Ethan. The judge said, look, we're not going to let him get on the witness stand just to say the fifth, the fifth, the fifth. That would be prejudicial. So uh, she didn't allow Ethan to be called as a witness. But I always had questions about other kinds of witnesses. I couldn't believe that the defense couldn't find a family member, a co-worker or someone 
that could support Jennifer's claim, that is the mother's claim, that she was a very involved mother. That was her case. She was like, no, I didn't know my son had these emotional issues because he hid them from me. And to the contrary, I was so hyper vigilant about my son, his grades and his friends, uh, that if he had had these mental health issues, I would have seen them. And that was what they were banking on. But unfortunately, that argument for me was always a loser. And it was a loser because the mountain of evidence that the prosecution had amassed, evidence that showed Jennifer would leave her son alone in the house by himself for hours at a time when she would be at a horse stable. Uh, and the prosecution painted this picture of a woman that cared more about her horses than she cared about her son. Also, Jennifer had a boyfriend outside of her marriage, and they were able to show that she would spend time uh, with this boyfriend. Again, time with the boyfriend, no time with her son. And then some of the most damning evidence in this case is what happened after the Crumbleys, James and Jennifer were charged. They didn't turn themselves in right away. They didn't even show up at their own son's arraignment. What they did was absconded. They tried to flee. They withdrew $6,000 out of the bank, which is pretty much all the money they had. They packed a small bag and, and started uh, fleeing. They were found in a friend's building, but it looked like they were trying to make their way to Canada. Now, they tried to play that off by saying they had, had some threats on Facebook, but if you were being threatened on Facebook, when you go to the police department, would you, you know, start running from hotel to hotel? And if you were a concerned parent, wouldn't you show up at your son's arraignment? There were just so many things that made this case disturbing and troubling. Uh, so again, Jennifer Crumbly, guilty on all four involuntary manslaughter uh, charges. Uh, a trial, I'm sorry, sentencing hearing has been set for April 9th. Uh, she was remanded immediately uh, right after the verdict was read. Uh, the marshals came. They put handcuffs on her. She's already been... Uh, in jail in a 23-hour lockup for her own protection. And now she returns to that jail until April 9th when she's sentenced. And I can't imagine that she gets anything less than 10 to 12 years or even maybe the maximum. And that she then does get assigned to an actual prison. As I said, her husband James will be on trial shortly and uh, not likely that he gets off because he's the one that actually bought the gun and presumably failed to safeguard that gun that Ethan Crumbly, a nine millimeter, was gifted to him by his parents for Christmas, took to a high school in Michigan and brutally shot and killed four students, wounding seven others. Uh, also in legal news today, Donald Trump is not immune. He can be charged uh, for subverting uh, our democracy, trying to undermine our democracy. So his criminal trial can move forward. Uh, that's good news for everyone that believe that even someone like Donald Trump is not above the law. And in other legal news, in this hour, we're going to be talking about Mark Ridley Thomas. He's a former L.A. City Council member, L.A. Uh, County Supervisor, uh, who recently filed a very, very compelling appellate brief uh, arguing that his conviction, his bribery conviction, should be overturned. And since he filed that brief, there have been several friends of the court briefs filed uh, briefs uh, addressing the issue of race and how Black women were excluded from his jury, uh, briefs addressing this honest service fraud. Uh, so we're going to talk to our legal panel in this hour about some of these big legal cases. 
I feel like uh, this is law school 101 today. And in case you have a burning interest uh, to better understand the law, this is definitely one hour you don't want to miss. Stay with KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back, and today is all about legal news. There's so much legal news in the news. I feel like we got to talk about it, and I have two of the brightest lawyers I know joining me in this hour. They are regulars on this show. They are uh, Bobby Grace, who is a veteran prosecutor, and Mansfield Collins, who is an experienced criminal defense attorney. So let's start with Jennifer Crumbly, Bobby your veteran prosecutor. Were you surprised that the uh, district attorney in this county in Michigan decided to charge these parents with involuntary manslaughter? Typically, as you know, parents are not held criminally responsible for the intentional acts of their children. And we haven't seen any parents uh, held accountable because their kid has shot up a school or shot up a mall or has you know engaged in, in this kind of conduct. You're correct, Ariba, and, and good afternoon. Um, yes, I uh, no, I wasn't shocked that um, she and her husband were charged because the facts in this case, as you pointed out in the earlier segment, are pretty egregious. Um, but you point out something that um, could have ramifications for the nation. As you know, particularly here in the Los Angeles area, we have some violent crimes that are committed by young people. And if this uh, theory or application of the law is extended to urban centers around the country, it could have serious ramifications for um, people that look like you and me um, that get caught up in the criminal justice system. That's true. And I've even thought about, Bobby, could this be extended to, you know, not just parents, say grandparents or, you know, other folks who are caretakers. I mean, this happens to be a mother and a father, but I, I, there there could be, obviously, this case could have some precedential value and we could see other prosecutors around the country. But clearly, there'd have to be such an egregious set of facts like the ones in this case before I think a prosecutor would try to file yeah. these charges. Uh, one of the things, man, still that caught me uh, off guard with the defense's strategy was they only called one witness. The prosecution called 21 witnesses, had 400 documents basically put into evidence. And Jennifer Crumbly was the only one that testified on her own behalf as a defense attorney. Do you think that was a smart strategy call on the part of this defense lawyer? You know, um, we don't know all of the uh, facts and evidence that the defense attorney was facing, but certainly... Uh, it looked as if the defense attorney decided to use this sympathy card and show that the government was uh, putting on all of this this big case, this volume of evidence, and and try to appeal to the jury that it's just an average mother that may have shown some bad judgment but didn't constitute, didn't cross the line and violate the law. But it backfired. It also backfired for, I think, the defense attorney to inject her own personal experiences into the case. I don't think that that carried any water with the jury at all. I think that was a bad mistake. 
Yeah, I watched that and I, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. I'd love to hear both of your opinions on this. I was cringing as this lawyer was talking about, you know, not taking a shower and using baby wipes because she's so busy and her, you know, yeah. calling her fourth child a oopsie baby. Uh, and then the the analogy that really made me know that this was not going to work was she said, in my kitchen, there's a butcher block of cook, of kitchen knives. Am I going to be held criminally responsible if one of my kids gets a knife, you know, and, and does something with it? And I'm thinking in my mind, lady, there has not been a rash of stabbings with kitchen knives at school, but there has been a rash of school shootings with guns that have been brought on campus by students. So your little analogy about a knife has nothing to do with this. And I feel like it trivialized the gravity and the severity of these crimes, of the deaths of these four students. And I can only imagine the parents of these dead students sitting there probably wanted to just, you know, grab her and shake her. But what do you make, Bobby, of, of a lawyer, in this case, this defense attorney? I mean, she spent half the argument talking about what a bad parent she was. Again, as Mansfield uh, said, obviously trying to get some sympathy from the jurors to make them say, look, we're all bad parents. And just because we're bad parents doesn't mean we should, you know, be criminally charged. What would you make of that strategy? Well, I think Mansfield will agree with this. Um, normally, prosecutors say that if the defense attorney and or the prosecutors start talking about things other than the facts in your case, then you've lost. And clearly here, the facts of the case were so egregious that this defense attorney really had nowhere to go other than to talk about herself talk about all these things that you described as being trivial and trivializing the magnitude of the loss that these people suffered. But again, she really had nowhere to go, particularly because, uh, Oriva, I think it was pretty clear that nobody in this community pretty much cared for this family. And they, I think if they had been called to testify, they would have said that the child was not given proper guidance or care, and that the school had warned the parents that there was trouble with this kid. So this was a bad, bad fact pattern um, for her, and it's going to be bad for the husband. Yeah, and then you get cases like that, Mansfield, as a defense lawyer. You get those cases where the facts are just not on the side of your client, but the plea deal, perhaps, that they offered her, I can imagine they offered her something. Maybe they offered her 15 years or something, and she thought, I have to roll the dice to try to get a better deal at trials. When you have that situation like this, because I kept saying, where is the person? And you just answered it, by There probably wasn't a person that was willing to come in to say she was a good mother. Uh, I don't know, uh, Mansfield, help us out here. Was there anything this woman could have done, given this fact pattern, to better defend Jennifer Crumbly? That would have had to have been done. And in, in, in this case, uh, plea, uh, plea. Uh, dis uh, discussions with the DA. And in those plea discussions, she would have, in the plea discussions, which aren't public unless you actually enter into a plea agreement, she would have had to have accepted responsibility in those plea discussions and with the DA. And the question would be, was she willing to do that? Or did she think that that would be a gamble that she didn't want to take because they can't use the information, but at least they know that you have offered you know, an acceptance of responsibility. It's just that the DA wasn't willing to offer them perhaps a plea agreement that they could live with. Uh, but I think that this was a real gamble for them to roll the dice on this. This was not a uh, a case where the facts were in doubt 
or dubious or, uh, you know, equivocal. This was a pretty startling case of parental neglect of her son's uh, cries for help and help mother. And I mean, it it really was a, as you said, uh, Ariva, and I saw you on CNN, you did a great job. Uh, It really was a case that really cried out for some justice for the for the victims. And it shows that parents do have responsibility. Yeah, I I don't know a parent that buys a gun as a gift for a kid who has an obsession with guns, who is isolated, who the mother called depressed. I, I think what did it for me, you know, being a parent of three kids, you get called to the school and there's a drawing of a gun and blood and people dead and a picture that your son has drawn. First stop on the way for me is to a doctor, to a hospital, right. someplace. Right. Yes. And this mother left the meeting in 11 minutes and went back to work and never bothered to tell the school, you know, we did buy him a gun for Christmas. Maybe we should go. You you let him sit in this office while I go home that's five minutes away and check to make sure that gun is still where it is. You know why she couldn't do that? Because she didn't know where the gun even was. And that's what's so egregious about this. Uh, Bobby, real quickly, the father, what does he do now? He's going to trial. Do you think he takes the plea deal? Because I don't know where he goes from a trial standpoint. He obviously can't point the finger at the mother. So what does he do in a trial? I don't think that the prosecutors there are going to um, offer a plea deal to him unless he's willing to do the maximum of whatever they're going to offer. He bears um, arguably the most responsibility here because it's alleged that he was the person that actually bought the gun. He spent a lot of time uh, with the child, teaching the child how to um, fire that weapon. And he is in the same position as the mother in that he was told, uh, as you pointed out, that the school warned them about him drawing pictures of guns and death and did nothing. So I think they want him to have his day in court too. Yeah, this is a case, uh, unfortunately, a colossal failure by these parents and by the school. We can't let the school off the hook either. Uh, The judge ruled that they were immune from any kind of prosecution based on Michigan law. But clearly, why that school did not search that backpack, why they didn't demand that that kid leave after they saw that disturbing drawing, why they let him go back into that classroom I know the parents of those dead kids will probably never, ever uh, be settled in their spirits about what this school failed to do to protect their kids. And this is just a wake up call for all of us, parents, school districts, you know, any adults involved with kids. We have to do our jobs. We have to be vigilant uh, and we have to see the warning signs and take action when we see those warning signs. When we come forward, more of today's legal news. We'll be talking about those friends of the court briefs filed on behalf of Mark Ridley Thomas. And Donald Trump is not above the law. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, we are back, and Bobby Grace, veteran prosecutor, and Mansfield Collins, a very experienced defense attorney, are joining me, and we have been literally the only uh, TV and radio streaming platform providing gavel-to-gavel coverage of the federal bribery trial involving L.A. uh, City Council member, former L.A. City Council member Mark Ridley Thomas, 
Uh, we had our own justice correspondent, Dion Raymond, who was in the courthouse every day of the trial. And we've been following uh, every filing with respect to the appeal that Mark Ridley Thomas has initiated. And we covered a couple of weeks ago the filing of Mark Ridley Thomas's appellate brief. And we won't get the opposition from the government uh, to that appellate brief for a couple of weeks, but we have uh, been able to read and review some friends of the court uh, briefs, briefs filed by uh, legal experts, by law professors, by nonprofit organizations who have an interest in some of the issues that have been raised by uh, the underlying trial and indictment of Mark Ridley Thomas. So Mansfield, talk to us about these friends of the court brief. I'm using that term because that's, a, I think, a friendlier term than the Latin term, amicus uh, curate, uh, that we use in uh, legal circles. But who has filed them and why? Well, Areva, there were three amici briefs filed. One of them was filed by former California officials. Another one was filed by Ninth Circuit Federal Public and Community Defenders. And the last one, which was which was very compelling, was filed by a group of black professors. And I mean black law professors from the most prestigious institutions and black law professors that you, you see day in and day out on, on t television shows talking about in issues that affect the black community. And they're very good briefs. Let's talk about, Bobby, the one filed by these black law professors. What's the subject matter of that brief in particular? I know we spent some time talking about the Batson challenge. So I know that brief addresses the, the issue of Batson in some ways. But uh, give us more detail about that brief, that Friends of the Court brief filed by those very prestigious law professors. So what they decided to do, Ariva, was they wanted to focus on um, the charge or the allegation that the prosecution illegally excluded black jurors, specifically uh, two black women who were on the uh, jury panel. So they went into um, what we call a Batson-Wheeler analysis, and it's called Batson-Wheeler because those are, are the names of the two seminal cases in uh, juror exclusion um, that can result in racial bias. And uh, it's an excellent discussion of how Batson-Wheeler violations or racial, racially motivated juror exclusion um, can affect a jury and how it could have impacted Mark Ridley Thomas's case. And uh, Mansfield did a really good job of talking about that the last time that we were together, the fact that uh, if the prosecution did, in fact, exclude jurors because they were Black and because specifically these were two Black women, that could have um, definitely damaged the prospects for Mark Ruthie Thomas because, as Manfield pointed out, um, Black women jurors would have been sensitive to some of the arguments and issues that the defense brought up in Mark Ruthie Thomas's defense. So what happens, Mansfield? Let's say the Batson argument, which is made in that 90-page uh, appellate brief filed by Mark Ridley Thomas, is very, very uh, esteemed panel of appellate lawyers. And now we have this esteemed group of Black law professors basically co-signing on the argument in Mark Ridley Thomas's appellate brief saying, yes, there were Batson violations. What's the remedy? Does this mean all of the convictions get thrown out and Mark Ridley Thomas goes about his business as if this never happened? 
Or does this mean the case gets remanded, i.e. sent back to the trial court and the prosecution gets to do it all over again with the new trial? This is a classic um, uh, example of Batson-Wheeler and an improper uh, dismissal or disqualification of uh, Black female jurors. And as a result, when you look at what happened in this case with the other facts, use the use of a one first time only novel case analysis to a set of facts, you have violation of Batson-Wheeler, then you have a novel case where you're stretching facts to try to enforce them into an area of the law called dishonest services. I think under the, that scenario, I think there's a great likelihood that the case could be that Mark Ridley could receive an acquittal of all charges on appeal. If not, I think that the case would be uh, sent back to the trial court on a and a motion to grant a new trial would be granted. So help us understand, Bobby, how would the appellate court decide if those black women, two black jurors, were excluded solely on the basis of race? Because if they were excluded because they said something like, you know, we can't be impartial, or maybe I heard a lot about this case and I formed an opinion, or for some of the other reasons that we know jurors are excluded, uh, then there wouldn't be a violation. But I'm just trying to understand, how does an appellate court that wasn't there you know, they have a record in front of them, but how do they make this really critical decision? Or maybe they have to rely on the record. And so they have to go to what the prosecutor said at the time that they excluded. Um, sometimes the judge at that time of the exclusion, the defense will immediately uh, object on the basis of Batson-Wheeler. And then sometimes the judge will make the prosecutor at that time state on the record why they were excluding uh, this juror, what was the basis for it? I'm assuming in this case, that's what happened. And the prosecutors gave whatever, you know, uh, ex um, well, Bobby, the prosecutor is never going to say on the record, I'm excusing, <laughs> you know, excusing black woman number one, because she's a black woman and she might be sympathetic to this black man. So they're never going to state that, you know, no, directly but, in that way. No, but what has happened, Ariba, is there's been um, significant changes in the law on both the state and federal side where a prosecutor can't rely on those the same old excuses as to why they might excuse a juror. For example, you can no longer uh, excuse a juror solely because they live in the same neighborhood where the crime happened. You can't excuse a juror solely because they may have a family member who may have been convicted of a felony or convicted at the same time of crime that this has happened. So a lot of things have happened within the criminal justice system and reform that make it easier for judges to look to see the true motives of what a prosecutor may be when they exclude a juror. So what, what's typically, Bobby, in your experience, the remedy if the appellate court does believe that the reason the prosecutor gave for eliminating those two jurors was pretextual, i.e. wasn't the real reason, was just a made-up reason, uh, what's typically the remedy? Usually it's going to be a new trial. Um, as Manfield, Mansfield points out, if the judge uh, appellate court felt that the uh, the exclusion was so egregious, they could rule that um, that the pr uh, prosecution should not get a second bite at the apple and should not be able to retry. But 99.9% .9 of the time, 
those type of violations end up in a new trial. So Mansfield, the judge is sitting there. He or she, in this case, she, the female judge, heard the explanations given by the prosecutor. So if there is a Batson violation, isn't the trial judge trained in all of this reform that Bobby just talked about? Shouldn't they be the first line of defense to say no prosecutor? That's a, a improper justification for the exclusion of this juror. Uh, the magic word was they should be the first <laughs> line of defense, but usually they're the first line that sustains uh, and upholds the, uh, the the exclusion of black women jurors. And that's why Bobby is correct. That's why that they went to the legislature and the legislature passed some reforms. But but those reforms without a conscientious judge don't mean very much if the conscientious judge still feels that, well, even no questions were asked about where did you live? Did you, did you live in a gang uh, area? Do you have any relatives that have been, you know, uh, have prior criminal histories? If those questions aren't asked, then it's back to the reason that Batson Wheeler came into play. The, the prosecution, the federal uh, prosec prosecutors wanted to excuse those black women jurors. You know, the history of that is the O.J. Simpson case where black women jurors, because they understood more about the elements of the black community and how policing takes place, they were they were they were criticized for trying to influence the jury's verdict. And all they did was share their experiences. And that's what's missing in a trial that Mark Ridley Thomas had. He didn't have any black women to share their experiences with the jury. Last question on this, Bobby. How important and how influential are these friends of the court briefs? Are you know how much of an impact will they have on the appellate judges in their decision making, and particularly uh, the one we're focused on today that was uh, filed on behalf of this very prestigious list of black uh, law professors? Is this likely to help you know sway the court one way or the other? It can't hurt. And, and I would say in Mark Lee Thomas's case, he needs every hand on deck in terms of trying to, um, you know, weigh in and have some influence here. I do think that of all the briefs that have been filed, it's probably more likely the legal brief that was um, submitted by the prestigious judge uh, law professors might have an opportunity to um, sway some minds there. And presumably the reason the courts allow these kinds of briefs to be filed is because these are important issues that go beyond this one case. So uh, folks who have an interest in the issue of black women being excluded or the use of honest service fraud uh, in indicting public officials, they're folks who care about these issues and folks who believe that the right outcome in cases like this are so important because they predict and, you know, give us an indicator about how cases that are similar uh, might be charged and might be handled in the future. So there's a lot of interest. I think when I read those uh, Friends of the Court, those Amica uh, briefs, Amica's briefs, uh, I was very impressed that people who aren't necessarily friends of Mark Ridley Thomas don't know him. I know some of those law professors uh, that signed on to that Batson brief, and I know they don't know Mark Ridley Thomas personally, uh, but again, these are folks who are protectors of our laws, and they care about 
how our judicial system works, how our legal system works. So uh, as you said, Bobby, this is all hands on deck. So kudos to Mark's team and all of those folks who have stood up to say that this case is more important and bigger than even this individual defendant. And these principles in our law, uh, like not excluding people, particularly Black women, on the basis of race is an important principle that we should uphold in our justice system. When we come forward, Donald Trump, uh, a big blow to him by yet another court, and this time an appellate court with a Republican appointee, uh, as well as two Democratic appointees. And this case shows why judges and who sits on the federal benches, both at the state and both at the trial level and the appellate level, why it all matters. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, we are back. And in this last segment, uh, we couldn't talk about the legal news of today without talking about the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, who rejected today Donald Trump's claim that he is somehow immune to charges of plotting to subvert the results of the 2020 election. That court ruled that Donald Trump must go to trial on a criminal indictment accusing him of seeking to overturn his loss to President Biden. Now, this unanimous ruling by a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, uh, two of those uh, Judges were appointed by a Democratic president, one appointed by George Bush, a Republican president. This was a significant defeat for Donald Trump. Uh, not likely to be the last word, though, on his claims of executive immunity, because we know Trump's playbook is to try to file as many appeals as possible to the highest courts possible. And in this case, it would be up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, but this is significant, uh, Mansfield, and this court, when you read some of the language in this decision, says that Donald Trump's claim uh, is one that would be detrimental and injurious to our entire democracy. Uh, and I thought it was very interesting when this court says Donald Trump is now citizen Trump. And as a citizen like you and me and Bobby and everyone else, he has all of the defenses that you and I would have. And that is not the defense of executive immunity. That is reserved to someone who is an executive, i.e. the president at the time. What do you make of this decision? Well, the Court of Appeals and uh, the District Court of Appeals in D.C. basically was saying that uh, Donald, citizen Trump, <laughs> citizen Trump no longer believes if you accept the arguments of his attorneys in checks and balances, no longer believes in a check and balances with between the executive and the judiciary and the legislative. He just simply believes that if he has the ultimate immunity, he can do anything. And when he says he wants to be a dictator for one day, we would say it's a crime if he tried to dissolve Congress or suspend the Constitution. But if his immunity argument was accepted by the court, why wouldn't he actually be a dictator for one day and do those things? And so the court was really sort of looking at his conduct outside of court and his conduct of his lawyers. And basically, there was a good marriage between this the citizen Trump. This argument is extremely dangerous to democracy, dangerous to our checks and balances, dangerous to our public safety, 
Citizen Trump is a dangerous person in the eyes of the Court of Appeal, a dangerous person. You know what's so funny? And I'm laughing because, you know, you can't make this stuff up, Bobby. Not only did Citizen Trump try to use this blanket immunity uh, to absolve himself from any criminal responsibility for his actions, we saw some of his sycophants trying to use the same arguments trying to make the argument that because somehow citizen Trump had immunity that they could also rely on this executive immunity uh, to shield themselves from liability as well. Criminal liability, that is a uh, very dangerous argument, thankfully rejected by this appeals court. Where does this case go now, uh, Bobby? Clearly, we know Trump is going to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, but does this allow Judge Chuckin, that federal district court judge in New York, to put this trial back on calendar because she's taken it off calendar? I, I think that that judge is going to remain uh, in that lane in terms of waiting until the Supreme Court weighs in. I do think that this is going to get expedited review by the United States Supreme Court because I think they also want to weigh in and say that citizen Trump is not immune from prosecution. And as long as he's not the sitting president, he should be held accountable. And I think all of us should be very, very grateful today because we saw on January 6th that this country came very perilously clo close to being overturned. And if his arguments won the day, then it would have been done legally. The democracy would have been overturned. So we're, we're this is a good day, Ariba. Good day for the democracy, for sure. So, Mansfield, this goes to why presidential elections matter, because the three judges sitting on that D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Chuckin, who is going to be the trial court whenever this case does get reset in that uh, federal courthouse in Manhattan, all of these federal judges are appointed and they are approved by the Senate and when people don't vote or they think their vote doesn't matter or they make these false equivalencies between the Democratic and the Republican presidential candidate, you end up with a court system that is packed with Republicans. Uh, one of the things that the Biden administration did today was release a document of all the things they've done uh, to support the African-American community. And one thing they pointed out, Mansfield, is one third of all female black judges sitting on federal benches today are because of Joe Biden. So when people say that Joe Biden hasn't done anything for the black community, I mean, we can start with Katanji Brown Jackson, first black woman ever to sit on the Supreme Court in its entire history. And then we should look at, you know, these judges, these black women that have been appointed by Joe Biden. Uh, and that's enough reason to have a Democrat sitting uh, in that White House, because Republican judges, I was talking to a woman today, she was down in Florida on a hearing uh, for the uh, you know, the fearless fund, you know, the case where they're trying to undermine DEI in this country. And she said it was two Trump appointed judges and they were very Trumpian in the questions that they were asking the litigants. And she didn't feel like there was going to be a favorable ruling for the fearless fund. So talk to us, Mansfield, in this last 30 seconds about why these elections matter in terms of who's going to be on these on the federal bench. If we don't vote based on saving this democracy, then we won't even have an opportunity to have a policy discussion about anything under citizen Trump. 
And so when you look at, again, and if you just want to add up and compare, as you did, Ariva, um, between Barack Obama, President Obama, and President mm -hmm. Biden, it's insanity for uh, any member of the, of the African-American community to, to question why it's important to vote. Yeah. Right now, this is going to be a vote for the next Supreme Court. And, and if you think that you're going to get a black appointee to the Supreme Court from a citizen Trump, you're fooling yourselves. Well, we are out of time. Thank you so much for that, Mansfield. Thank you so much, Bobby. Bobby Grace Mansfield Collins, uh, the best legal analysis of the day right here on <laughs> Martin in Real Time. Thank you so much for joining me.